Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's International Women's Day, and there's still a long way to go to achieve gender equality in this country. Why have racialized women in science not seen the same rate of success as white women? We'll chat with Dr. Juliet M. Daniel, professor and acting associate dean of research from the Faculty of Science at McMaster University, about that. Ahona Mehdi will give us her reaction to last week's Hamilton Board of Education meeting, which uh, dealt with the charges of racism within the board. And the theme for this year's International Women's Day is Choose to Challenge, a call to action on building a gender-equal world. Michelle Eaton from the Ontario Chamber of Commerce joins us to talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. To set the scene... This is International Women's Day, of course. A new poll that was just uh, released a couple of days ago suggests that most Canadians believe there is still a long way to go to achieve gender equality in this country. Mia Rabson has the details. Almost two-thirds of people surveyed last month by Leger and the Association for Canadian Studies said equality between men and women has not been achieved. The poll results themselves underscore the challenge. Women were far more likely than men to say equality remains elusive at home, at work, in politics, the media, and the sciences. However, men and women were aligned in believing that the equality gap remains the biggest in the world of sports. Mia Rabson, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. And we're going to delve into those, too. We're going to talk about different professions and uh, the uh, challenges and some of the accomplishments, uh, which we need to accent as well, about women in some of these uh, endeavors, uh, including women in science. Here's another stat, and I mean, you know, as we start to look at some of these, I think it just indicates what Mia was just saying here, that we we have a long way to go here. We can't sit here smugly and say, well, you know, women's rights are much better than they were 10 years ago. There's still something going on here, or not going on, as the case might be. According to United Nations data, less than 30% of scientific researchers worldwide are women. Uh, Pew Research shows that women remain underrepresented in engineering, computer science, and physical science. So you get the gist of what we're doing here. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Juliet M. Daniel. Uh, Dr. Daniel is a professor and acting associate dean of research and external relations with the Faculty of Science at McMaster University in Hamilton. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And happy International Women's Day to all the women that are listening. And to you as well. Uh, I want to talk about that, Doctor, and I talk about the accomplishments of women. Uh, we've heard anecdotal evidence about this in the past. I'll start it off with a quote from uh, the late Stephen Hawking, who said, uh, it is not scientific proof of gender equality that is required, but general acceptance that women are at least the equals of men or better. Uh, interesting credo, uh, something I think a lot of us believe, probably not as much of us uh, as should in situations like that. Why, why the huge gap here? Why so few women that, that are getting into, into sciences and things of this nature, and, and even fewer, I guess, that are being successful at it? Um, well, I think it's, it's not some, I think basically it starts from the systemic barriers that the system has, right? So these are systems that when you consider how university and the academy has been established for hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of years, it wasn't really designed and built to accommodate females in the system, right? So, mm -hmm. and we've all heard, especially during the pandemic, this issue of childcare being an issue. And we know that many, many students, uh, definitely at McMaster, more than 50% of our students are female in the undergraduate level. Then we get to the graduate level and that drops significantly to perhaps 25%. And then at the postdoctoral level, we see another drop in the percentage of women. And definitely by the time you get to the professoriate, there are significantly less women as faculty members at most universities in Canada and probably across the world. So there's this attrition that occurs. 
So they, they enter the university full of enthusiasm and, and eagerness and passion and loving STEM. But then as they proceed through, they see and encounter various challenges that their male colleagues aren't encountering. And they, they choose to pursue other careers. And some of them don't see or don't consider that um, STEM r- research or even just being a, a faculty member or working in industry will accommodate or facilitate them having a family and being a professional woman, which is unfortunately a decision that many women are still having to make. And I have yet to hear any of my male colleagues or male relatives ever say that they think about, hmm, should I consider that career because I want a family? Like men just do not have that thought. I don't know of any man that ever considers, you know, choosing a career based on their decision to also want a family. What about at, at that level, though, Doctor? Is there any encouragement to say, "No, wait, we we can do this. Let's try to find an accommodation"? Or is is it a board of frustration that they just decide, "I'm going to have to take a different path"? Now, I think many universities have been making significant strides to address that that issue, and and definitely we're putting things in place, and it's taking a long time and a lot of work from many many women, which is also the challenge. There's so few of us in STEM. And then the burden falls on those few women in STEM to really push to make those changes happen, which then, of course, there's still only 24 hours in a day. So then you fall behind on keeping up with the literature, on doing your research. So then you fall behind in publishing as many um, articles as your male colleagues. And then they get rewarded for all their numerous publications, and they get promoted and you don't. So it just it, that's, that's what I'm saying about the system just is not well-designed and needs a major overhaul. Some people would say just deconstruct completely, but just a major overhaul (laughs) of the system is needed to really accommodate and and demonstrate that we care about every human being, you know, regardless of gender or ethnicity or any other intersection. I I know we're kind of getting off on a tangent here, but I'm I'm just reminded as you were saying that, though, Doctor, uh, watching the the movie about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, the brilliant uh, jurist, of course, uh, who passed away Mm -hmm. last year, Mm -hmm. uh, and and the one segment there where her her husband was battling cancer in the hospital, uh, so she was doing her legal work, uh, looking after the children, visiting the doctor. She got, I think, an average of about 90 minutes sleep for every 24 hours, uh, trying to do all three things at once. Exactly. and that was the time. That was the way things were back then. And, and and as you say, I don't know that too many males can actually say, "Yeah, that was the kind of pressure I was under." I mean, it just doesn't seem to happen. There's there's it's 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 really two different universes, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. It's incredibly challenging for women, and also frustrating because we're basically society is basically saying fifty percent of our population isn't valued. We're not worthy, but yet our society cannot continue. Um, if women don't procreate, <laughs> right? Like we're mm-hmm. the ones that have to, you know, we get pregnant. We're the ones that have the children. We have to nurture those children to a certain age. And somehow we're still not valued. And, you know, for many women, they feel like they're just seen as vessels to, for procreation, right? And that's that's not appropriate or acceptable. What about societal attitudes towards things like this? And, uh, for instance, a, a, a young student, female student, says, "You know, I'm, I'm sure I'm really, really interested in medicine. I think that's my career path." Mm-hmm. And, and automatically, there was a time where people said, "Oh, you mean you want to be a nurse?" Uh, could, <laughs> Uh, not that there were not female doctors, but there were few and far between, yes. and we know some of the struggles yes. they had to even to get into medical school. Yes. But there's just that mindset. And if you wanted to be in yes. business, I mean, oh, you want to be in the secretarial pool. No, I want to be a CEO. 
Yeah. Uh, and people would look at you like, isn't that cute? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, and it's, that, it's something, it's funny, because I did my postdoctoral fellowship in, in um, Memphis, Tennessee at St. Jude Children's Hospital. And every time I went to a function, which was predominantly white with maybe two or three um, black people, and I would be introduced to someone, they always said, oh, you work at St. Jude, are you a secretary or a nurse? They never, ever asked if I was a physician or a researcher. Never, ever. You know, and it was, I was like, uh, no, I'm a researcher. So in my case, as a black woman, it was like, hmm, she can't be a doctor or a researcher at St. Jude. She must be a secretary or a nurse. It's the first impression too often that people get. And I, and I know in a time and place, you know, go back to the RPG movie and other things like that, uh, that seemed to be the impression of society. Uh, here in the 21st century, is it getting any better? I think it's getting better. It is getting better. It's just been way too long. It's long overdue, and we need to jump from, you know, 10 to 100, like, in the next year. We need to really, this time next year, we should have some major, major victories and celebrations rather than having this conversation we're having again. We were saying we're slowly getting there. We can't be building this one brick at a time. We need to be building this one wall at a time, one house at a time. And when we talk about these numbers, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, 30% of scientific researchers worldwide are women, and that's a pathetically low number. But you just brought another element into this that I wanted to explore, if I could, as well, Doctor, uh, and that's the, the racial aspect of this. Uh, you know, the, there's the gender issue, certainly. Uh, if you are a woman of color at trying to break into what is, quote-unquote, a man's profession, uh, the, the obstacles are almost, well, I was going to say almost insurmountable. I mean, people such as yourself that have overcome them uh, are just wonderful stories that we hear, but far too many of them don't make it over that that that, yep. that big wall that's built up. Yep, yep. No, that's, that's true, and it's something, and I didn't notice this. As I said, my first, I should say my eye-opener was when I was doing my postdoctoral research in, in Tennessee, because until that point, you know, you're just an undergrad student, you're a grad student, you're not thinking of these things. I definitely wasn't thinking of those things, and they're definitely, in polite Canada, we were not discussing race when I was an undergrad student or a graduate student. That was not something one talked about at all. And so my first real encounter and realization of how few black women there were in STEM was while I was at St. Jude's Children's Hospital and Vanderbilt University. There were so few of us. It was it was really stark and striking, and that was when I began to realize that that was there was a problem in the system because I knew so many brilliant young black women, and some of them specifically chose not to pursue academia because they didn't see themselves represented. And when I started at McMaster, my very first class, um, after the very first class, a whole bunch of young black st female students came up to me and they were so excited they were raised here in toronto and had never had a single black professor or teacher in their high school and they were so excited to actually see a black female professor and for the rest of my course in that very first year all of them sat in the front row just soaking it up you know asking questions being engaged and so if you think about the fact that up until then they had just sat at the back of the class were never engaged in any of their courses that's a whole cohort of students, like decades of students that we've lost in the system because they didn't see any representation. They didn't feel that they could be a professor or a scientist. And suddenly they saw a professor doing research and they thought, wow, that could be me, you know? 
I, I hear that time and time again from young students especially. Uh, they need to see somebody in that role to say, yes, that's achievable. Uh, yeah. and, and I guess we are starting to make some inroads. I mean, you know, the United, the United States elected the first uh, black, uh, first first of all, the first uh, female pr- vice president and yeah. black yeah. and actually multi uh, multi-ethnic, yeah. multi-ethnic. But at the yeah. time when you when you rise up that ladder, though, doctor, oftentimes you become a target, and oh, and, yes. and social media is, is is obviously the playground for some of the misogyny that we see here. Yeah. I think of uh, of Dr. Teresa Tam, who's the chief medical officer of Health here, and obviously in the news because of what's going on with the mm-hmm. pandemic, etc. Yeah. Uh, and some of the things that I see on there, the posts about her being uh, because of her her Asian background, then she's yeah. working for the Chinese government. She's a stupid yeah. uh, fill in your word here, that sort of thing. It's there's a mindset among some folks. Uh, that just simply say, well, she's a woman. She's uh, she's 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 doesn't look like me, so she's got to yeah. be wrong in situations like that. And th- yes. sadly, because of social media, there's a platform for those people. I don't think it's just social media. When I, as I said, when I first started as a professor, I also got those comments on my teaching evaluations, and there was no social media. I don't want to date myself. There was no social media 20 years ago, so the students were writing these on my student evaluations. Because, again, imagine if these black students had never had a black teacher in high school, had never had a black professor, and here they were in second-year university, and it was the first time they were seeing a black professor. That means all of the white students probably had that same experience of never seeing a black professor. So the white students in my class pretty much also thought, so the black students saw me as someone they could aspire to, whereas the white students saw me as someone that, you know, I didn't belong there. And you, I don't even want to tell you what they wrote on my evaluations about me. The, the well, words and the terms they said about me were just horrible. And, and the system wasn't set up to support me, because when I raised this with, with my department chairs and other people, everyone just said, oh, you know, students will be students, just ignore it. And that's the problem. So then those students are empowered to continue that behavior, because there's no accountability for that behavior. But that's that's... That's the attitude that we're trying to defeat here, isn't it? Oh, that's just so-and-so being so-and-so. Come on, guys are like that, or students are like that. Exactly, exactly. How many more generations are we going to tolerate that sort of attitude? Exactly, exactly. And it begins at home. It begins at home. Parents, you know, you don't want to put all the work on parents, but this, these things begin at home. It's all about how we train and raise our kids. Like, society isn't just automatically created when someone becomes an adult. It's these behaviors and attitudes begin from childhood. But the role model aspect of this is, is so key to this, and I, I think yeah. that's important because obviously I'm, I'm sure you would agree with the accomplishments that you've been able to do over the last number of years. Uh, self-motivation has to be a part of that. I mean, you know, yeah. we keep talking about people giving a hand up to people, and that, that's yeah. quite necessary, but yeah. the, there has to be a drive from within to make that happen, and having a role model, uh, someone who, to whom you can aspire, has uh, yeah. got to be a key part to that. And said, there, you know, there is a light at the end of that tunnel. I've got to keep going. Yeah, for sure. And I would say that for me, like my inner motivation, I was born and raised in Barbados. And I, you know, I came from a low income family, but I went to the top girls school on the island because of my academic aptitude. And our headmistress, you know, she pretty much told us, and she said it every week, you know, I'm priming you guys, you girls to be the leaders of the future. And we believed her. And also growing up in Barbados, where we had black lawyers, black doctors, black politicians, black teachers, black engineers. Like, I saw black representation everywhere. So I never doubted that I could be anything I wanted to be. 
And when you have the headmistress of your high school telling you that as a woman you can do anything, you believe it, <laughs> right? You believe Good. it and you see it. And so I, for me, that was, so I think that's part, not part, that's a huge part of my success story was actually having been raised in Barbados in a culture where I saw black excellence in every single profession. And so I never questioned that I could be anything I wanted to be. But I think that's a real challenge for, for Canadian um, youth, not just black youth, but any youth that of um, any ethnic minority youth, because they don't necessarily see that in our Canadian culture, even though we, we, you know, we proclaim to be this multicultural society. Yes, we are, but we don't see that diversity in our senior leadership and positions across Canada. Sadly, uh, so much more to talk about. We're going to try to cover a number yeah. of different facets of this. I, it was a pleasure having you on the program, Doctor. Thank you yeah. so much for your time and uh, continued uh, success with, with your endeavors. And, uh, and again, happy International Women's Day to you as well. Thank you so much for having me and happy International Women's Day to your colleagues. Absolutely. Hope you Thank give you again. Hope you the day or the week off. <laughs> <laughs> Would that I could. Okay. okay. <laughs> Thanks Thank so much, you. Doctor. Dr. Julia Daniel, of course, uh, from the uh, Faculty of Science at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There's so many different aspects to things that we should be talking about in International Women's Day. Part of that, of course, is discrimination. And it is not always gender discrimination. It can be racial discrimination. It can be uh, ethnic discrimination by religion, by so many different facets. And uh, we've had some terrible examples of that uh, over the last number of years. Uh, well, one right here in Hamilton, of course, with some incidents at the Hamilton Board of Education uh, that the board finally had to deal with uh, because of some complaints that were lodged about uh, the behavior and some of the comments that were made about board by board trustees to one of their student trustees. Uh, the final board report came down the other day, and among other things, trustees have asked Carol Pakin Miller, uh, one of the uh, trustees, to resign over anti-Muslim remarks that she is accused of making in front of former student trustee Ahona Mady. Uh, Vice Chairman of the board, Cam Galindo, says the sanctions are warranted. The substantiated evidence in the third-party investigation report demonstrates how the actions of this individual go against our principles of equity and the application of human rights decolonization, anti-racism, and anti-oppression principles. So let's talk about the implications of, of this report and how the board seems to be wanting to move forward on this right now. The, there were other people that were named in this. Only one, of course, was asked to resign uh, her seat. Others, uh, well, one issued an apology. Others were basically said since they did not actually breach the trust of the trustee code of conduct that uh, no action is going to be taken. Uh, an awful lot of people I've talked to over the last couple of days since this report was released say this just does not go far enough and it doesn't really solve any problems here. Let's uh, talk about this with the person who actually started this process because of the complaints that she made. Uh, Ahona Mehdi is with us. She is the former uh, Board of Education student trustee. Ahona, great to have you back on the program. Uh, so good to have you here on International Women's Day. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We didn't have a chance to hook up yesterday, or last week, rather, when this report came out. So maybe before we get into some of the nuts and bolts of this, you might give us a, your overview on what the board came out with as their quote-unquote final report here. Yeah, of course. Um, so I think ultimately they, the board did ask for the resignation of Carol Pakin Miller, along with sanctioning her from attending all committee meetings um, while she's still able to attend board meetings. And for Alex Johnstone, she's unable to chair any committees, and um, beyond that, there are really no relevant sanctions that were placed on any of the four trustees, Kathy Archer, Becky Buck, Alex Johnstone, Carol Pakin-Miller. Um, 
And so I think what we're hearing a lot from the racialized community, um, something that I'm feeling, something that Black and Indigenous students are feeling, is that, you know, this is absolutely not enough. Um, you know, all four sanctions, we're calling for, like, all four trustees, we're calling for their complete removal, and we want absolutely nothing less, because you cannot train racism out of these trustees who have been found to intentionally perpetuate harm and violence on Black, Indigenous, and racialized communities. Let's talk about that, because I, 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 I share, by the way, that frustration and that angst about this report. It, it just seemed to me as if they wanted to kind of gloss over this, and uh, suggesting, for instance, that, as, as you mentioned, two of them were... To, perceived to have not have gone against the the code of conduct for people like this which is not to say by the way that they didn't make the comments it's just to say they didn't think it it passed that bar well, how do you feel about that i mean you you saw this you experienced this yeah absolutely and a lot of the things that becky buck and kathy archer did were actually in public board meetings that you know the public observed it the public listened in on it and you know what does it model for like our racialized students for our black and indigenous students when elected officials like at the highest positions of power within the board are able to make overtly anti-black and anti-indigenous comments make comments like to the effect of all lives matter and not be reprimanded for that um like they can say that you know it wasn't a breach of the code of conduct but it definitely should be a breach considered a breach of the board's like ethical stance and i think that um it's just, it's really disappointing, and it's a flaw within the system within itself. If trustees are able to overtly make, you know, racist comments in public meetings and not be held to account for it. Because I, I know that when we had these initial discussions, we talked with the, the chair of the board, Don Danko, about this back in those days, and it was only a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the assertion was, well, these are just allegations and we have to approve them. Uh, and, and some of them were said to have uh, been made behind closed doors during some, some closed-door sessions. But these, as you mentioned, were public record. I mean, this is, it was out there. It, it should be in the minutes. I mean, it, if it's in black and white, it should be pretty obvious to people that there was a breach here. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that they're, like, denying that is absolutely ridiculous because everyone knows it happened. The Black, Indigenous, and Racialized community has been outraged about it. Um, you know, it happened at the June 22nd board meeting. It happened when Becky Buck said that it would be unjust to give an Indigenous student um space at the board table and so i think that like you know don Danko, she can say that you know there's you know no evidence and that um things are like not substantiated but the school board and individual trustees know very well what happened and they know very well that they were complicit in it and that's why they're trying to stay safe and that's why they're trying to like paint it as something that's you know a one-off instance something that like only i have experienced or something that i misinterpreted or something that you know, I experienced in a different way than they had experienced it. But the reality of the situation is the actions of trustees were racist, and there's nothing more to say than that. How did you feel as this was happening? I don't mean, you know, the, the report itself, though. But as you were experiencing this, as a, as a, as a person of color, I was on this board, uh, as you've told us in past discussions, uh, you felt as if you were being patronized, uh, talked down to, uh, and, and this was not just an, on a one-off occasion. I mean, this happened time and time and time again, which obviously drove you to the point where you say, I've got to do something about this, and you did take the charge and, 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 and force this sort of thing. I, I've got a problem with a board investigating themselves, but be that as it might. But as you were experiencing this, uh, on International Women's Day, where we're trying to talk about equality, gender equality and equality of all other aspects as well uh 
the victimization that was ongoing with you for some time, it, it had to just knock you back a few pegs. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I think that, um, you know, when I was at the board's table or when I, you know, had to interact with trustees, I would actually try to minimize, you know, my interaction with trustees as much as I could because it wasn't a safe environment. As, on top of it being a really patronizing environment, it was really unsafe because I felt as if um, I were to bring up any issues of anti-racism or anti-oppression, um, you know, it would be kind of like I would be kind of villainized for it. And I think that that applies to, you know, every racialized person who works in the board. Um, and I think that also applies to like every marginalized person that, that works in the board. You know, I think that that applies to, you know, queer and trans folks as well. I think that applies to women who are working in the board. Um, I've seen it firsthand, you know, and I think that the school board, um, they have like a very specific perception of, you know, what is acceptable, um, what should be modeled. And that, you know, is basically a white cis man. Um, and I think that it's, it's something that's ongoing and it's something that a lot of community members, after I came out with everything I had experienced, um, they've also come out with their stories and said, you know, the school board has treated me in a very similar way. And this includes teachers, this includes students, community members. Um, so, you know, as much as the school board wants to paint this as a one-off instance and, you know, they want to claim that they're sorry, they're not actually sorry because this is something that's intentional. This is something that they've consistently done. They've tried to completely marginalize and silence and villainize all black, indigenous, racialized, and marginalized people, um, who are their stakeholders? But do they not understand, Ahona, that, I mean, we've, we've done programs about the, the racial unrest at, at Bernie Custis Secondary School, of course, in the, in the, right by the stadium, at, at Churchill, I mean, and over a number of other schools. There have been student demonstrations, there have been, uh, you know, walkouts in some cases, you know, all characterized by the the mistreatment and and the attitude that uh, that the board seemed to have, and in some cases the staffs of those institutions would have. Did they not get it that you are the voice for those people, those students that feel as if they're not in a safe place? Yeah, I think that honestly, um, the way that I saw, it, I really think that the board saw me as a token. They really thought that you know we can put this uh, this young brown like woman on the board of trustees and she can act as our token for diversity as our token for student voice but you know the only reason they even like take so much pride in the role of student trustee is because you know they try to mold and shape student trustees and student leaders into something you know that really fits into their ideas of success and their ideas of you know what the school board needs to be and anytime anyone is to challenge that you know, they're villainized and they're, you know, patronized and that kind of thing. And so I remember during my term, even like trustees would tell me, like, when I would bring up issues of, you know, racism and oppression within the school board, they'd be like, yeah, I don't remember anyone ever talking about that until now, like until everything happened with like George Floyd in America. Um, and that was really, really disgusting to hear because students have been fighting this fight for years. Students have, you know, been like taking on issues within the board for countless, countless years. And um, I think that also goes to show like how the school board doesn't see, you know, racialized and marginalized people as relevant voices and voices that they should be listening to. Um, and I think that it's really it's really not just disappointing, but it's absolutely disgusting, to be honest.
Well, and, and that may go to one of the comments that was, uh, I, I think, part of the report, not this final report, but at least the initial investigation into this, where one of the trustees was uh, said to have uh, made some sort of a comment about her frustration with the fact that, uh, that well, the people of color were actually having a voice these days. Uh, and that seemed to bother that individual quite substantially. Uh, with that kind of mindset, I mean, that, that seems to me to be the, a classic case of a toxic workplace. Absolutely, yes. And that was actually Trustee Carol Pickin-Miller. And this was in the board's Human Rights and Equity Advisory Committee. So first of all, why is this racist, anti-Black trustee able to even sit on this committee in the first place? And also, this is a committee that's like comprised of black um primarily black uh youth and so for her to say that you know she said it directly to a black youth who was in this committee and so you know the school board did absolutely nothing about this they just allowed her to continue to sit on the committee and they allowed her to continue to operate in the way that she was and you know this it doesn't even like only speak to the complicity of board members but it also speaks to like the violence that is allowed to be inflicted upon black students where do you go from here? I mean, the report basically, uh, well, ask one trustee to step aside. Uh, if she doesn't, what happens? I mean, you know, is there going to be a change? I mean, I know they've talked about, well, we should do some training. If at this stage of your life you still need training about what's right and wrong when it comes to racialization, especially for people that, are, that have been elected to represent students and, and to and to construct an education system that fosters acceptance, uh, we we got a problem here. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think so. And I think in terms of Carol Paykin Miller, um, knowing how she has behaved in the past, I do not believe that she will resign. And so I do not think that this is enough. And again, we're demanding that all four of these racist trustees resign because, you know, we can't single only one of them out. They're all equally racist and they've all done equally egregious things. And I think that, you know, it's exactly what you said like at this point in your life like it's not it's not really about training right because these trustees a lot of these the things that they've done they've done them behind closed doors because they know that they're wrong but they're trying to hide that and it's also with the fact that you know they can't truly accept like accountability they can't take accountability for their actions and that proves that they're not willing to grow and they're not willing to educate themselves and you know we heard Don Zanko at the last board meeting say that she's uncomfortable with asking Carol Paykin Miller to resign and that's really disgusting that's a disgusting thing to say as the chair of the board the representative of the board because you know you should be holding elected officials on your board to the highest account and to say that you know you can educate racism on someone who has intentionally harmed marginalized and racialized communities um that's completely unacceptable and so again like we want the ministry to step in we want you know external forces to step in outside of the school board so that we can see the complete removal of each of these four trustees and I know the pushback on that's going to be, well, you know, it's the voters who decide. There's an election coming up in a year and a half, and, and they'll, they'll determine whether or not they should be. But, I mean, there's, that, that's, that's passing the buck, really. Uh, you know, the, the board has to be responsible for their own actions in situations like this. And uh, I'm, I'm, one, I'm worried, frankly, uh, right at this point, Ahona, about the message this sends to student bodies right across the city. Uh, that, you know, because there's been discussion about bullying, there's been discussion about, about racial discrimination, sexual discrimination, so many different aspects, challenges and problems for students right across the city. 
and and you look to the board of education to try to find solutions to this and there's supposed to be a protocol for bullying coming out how can you trust that they're going to quote unquote do the right thing when some of the people on that board are the perpetrators of some of the problems that they're supposed to be fixing yeah exactly like i think they honestly have no intention of actually moving forward and supporting students they never have and i don't think that they will um, because I think that they operate in a way that intentionally, like, marginalizes, um, you know, Black, Indigenous, racialized, and marginalized students. And I think that, um, you know, everything they do is reactionary. Everything they do is as a result of public pressure, because they're consistently trying to save face. Um, everything is consistently about, you know, what student success looks like in terms of, like, academics. And it's consistently about how the school board looks in comparison to other boards. And I think that, um, you know, the school board is continuously just like worrying about how people perceive them, but they don't actually care about their students. Nothing they do is actually proactive and nothing they do is, you know, preventative of like harm being caused on, you know, these communities, but it's rather reactionary to, you know, like public outcry and, you know, after the fact that students have been harmed. Um, and so I don't trust the school board to take responsibility for everything they've done. I don't trust them to move forward um, independently with, you know, good intentions and intentions to, you know, make Black, Indigenous, racialized, and marginalized students feel safe. Are you uh, basing those comments on the interaction that you had? I mean, as, as uh, when you were there as the student re- trust, trustee, rather, the student representative, uh, you did have some interactions. I know that you didn't feel comfortable doing it a lot of the time, uh, which is problematic in and of itself. But 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 you're not just basing this on, on anecdotal evidence. I mean, you were there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, like, I experienced it firsthand. I saw, like, the people who were in the highest positions of power at the school board. And these are disgustingly overtly racist people and so if these are the people that are like modeling what the school board should look like and modeling you know uh, the behavior that is like acceptable at the school board then what does that mean like how does that trickle down into staff how does that trickle down into the schools you know and I think that like it's it's not just something I saw as a student trustee it's something that I even saw as a student within schools um it's seen in like the curriculum it's seen in the way that you know, Black, Indigenous, racialized students are policed in schools. And so I think that, um, you know, this is just, it's, it's, a, it's a big issue that we, like, actually have to target and we actually have to combat. It's not something that, you know, we can have Band-Aid solutions for. We need actual change and we need an actual overhaul of the board. Not platitudes. That's, uh, that seems to be the challenge here. I mean, if, if they think that this report that has been released now is the end of it, you know, they can just kind of, you know, brush their hands off and say, there, now we can move on. Uh, I think we have to send a message that, no, this is not the end of it, that there has to be uh, a lot more soul-searching going on with some of those members. Uh, Huna, as always, thank you so much for the time today. We really do appreciate you jumping in with us for a little while, and uh, uh, we can only hope, that because of the hard work of people like you and so many others in this community, that uh, that you are going to exact the change that is necessary. We'll stay in touch. Thanks again for today. For sure. Thank you so much.
take care. Ahonda Medi, of course, former Board of Education school trustee who was the uh, catalyst for the report that came out about the discrimination that goes on on the Hamilton Board of Education. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The theme for this year, of course, for International Women's Day is Choose to Challenge, which is a call to action on building a gender-equal world. Well, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce has uh, been not just talking the talk, but walking the walk when it comes to identifying the concerns and the challenges for women in the workforce. And there are so many that we're going to talk about in just a couple of seconds, uh, none the least of which, of course, is uh, the gender pay gap. Uh, a little while ago on our program, we had Tara Kieran on. She was a family physician and a clinician investigating at St. Michael's. Uh, and she talks about the pay gap. And, uh, well, it's a vicious cycle. You've got fewer women in leadership roles. You've got more men in leadership roles. Those men benefit from the income. But the men also perpetuate these policies and informal support networks that recruit, retain, and promote other men at higher rates than women. And so you've kind of got this vicious cycle going on. At the same time, you know, you've got a different kind of vicious cycle where you've got women who are more likely to have imposter syndrome and have lower starting salary expectations than men. But one of the reasons they have low starting salary expectations is because their actual starting salaries are often lower. So they're being anchored in um, the discrimination that they see around them. Uh, and that's only one of the problems. Uh, there's so many more we want to talk about. To that end, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Michelle Eaton, who is the Vice President of Public Affairs with the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. Michelle, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, happy International Women's Day to you. Are you there, Michelle? Yep, I'm here. Can oh, you there you are. Now? Okay, you now are. I can hear you. Uh, so good to have you. Women's Day. And to <laughs> you too. So me. there's so much to talk about here, about uh, the women in the workplace, certainly. But this is a rather unusual year, of course, for women in the workplace because of COVID-19. And uh, just to kind of set the foundation for our discussion here, for listeners who may not know, uh, the Ontario Chamber has done a great deal of research into the impact that this virus and this pandemic has had on women in the workforce. And the numbers are staggering, aren't they? It's really shocking, and you know, at the in the wake of the pandemic, women's participation in the labor force fell uh, to the lowest it's been in three decades. Um, those economic impacts of the pandemic were direct and immediate for women in Ontario, and that's a combination of the, what you saw was temporary business shutdowns during the state of emergency, most uh, severely affected sectors that predominantly employed women, and then you had the restrictions on school and and uh, paid childcare facilities. Those shifted additional hours of unpaid family care onto uh, parents, largely taken up by mothers. Um, and then th- this is even further compounded when you look at uh, vulnerable groups. If you think about um, when you look at racialized women, Indigenous women, single mothers, low-income women, newcomers, and women with disabilities. So it's just been it's just been one um, uh, very challenging year uh, for women. And even just as the economy was starting to reopen, you saw women women um, seeing slower reemployment reemployment than men. So it's just been a t- it's just been a terrible and shocking year. Uh, the, the the stat that I saw that just kind of blew me away was over a hundred thousand women have lost their jobs. I mean, not just been laid off, but lost their jobs, uh, which is significantly higher than the number of men who have, have done this. So uh, the, the assertion that you made, uh, and, and we've talked with Rocco Rossi, of course, from the, the Ontario Chamber about this mm-hmm. as well, uh, you know, the people say, oh, come on, it's, it's not that disproportional. It really is. Women really have been impacted and, and, and victimized, really, by this pandemic. Yeah, it's just been one year that um, uh, it really put the spotlight because you saw that in many cases your work and home lives collided. Um, 
and and women uh, were trying to balance all these different things, um, and it really impacted their jobs or their ability, especially when you look at, you know, women entrepreneurs. A lot of small business owners are, are actually women, um, them trying to balance a, a lot of the shutdowns with family care. It's just been impossible. So it's just been a really, uh, uh, really um, one of those years that uh, is an opportunity, though, for public policymakers to look at w- some of those issues that pre-pandemic and then what was exasperated by the pandemic and how we can move forward uh, because those that thinking um, it's so important when we look at moving forward to make sure that our economy recovers. That's why for International Women's Day, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce, uh, we, under the theme of Choose to Challenge, we chose our um, call to action today to be um, a call to action to public policymakers to take leadership on the pandemic's impact on women and to um, ensure that targeted support and recovery planning is uh, there in the upcoming provincial and federal budget. So um, very proud that the whole entire chamber network is rallying around uh, our call to action for International Women's Day today. Well, certainly because of the timing, as you mentioned, uh, we're expecting a provincial budget and, of course, a federal budget in the next couple Mm -hmm. of weeks. Uh, I know they're working on it right now, and uh, you have been very vocal, the Ontario Chamber, that is, uh, about what needs to be done here. I mean, you know, we don't need studies at this stage. I mean, we've done more than enough studies. Uh, This is really a call to action, isn't it, Michelle? Most certainly it is, and we did did do a study um, uh, earlier in the the pandemic about the impacts of the pandemic on women. Um, So that looked at, uh, you know, immediate and longer term challenges. There's been a number of organizations that have done studies around this. Um, There is time for governments to act. There's a variety of issues everywhere from leadership to childcare, workforce development, entrepreneurship, and even flexible work. Uh, but it's it's really time for governments to take action. We have, there's indications from the federal government that, um, in their speech from the throne, there was indications there that uh, the government would be looking at doing an economic action plan around women. There was mention of child care. And then you see provincially um, the, the province has really been focused on their human trafficking strategy uh, and making sure that women, uh, their supports and protection for uh, violence against women or um, the, the trafficking that happens in Ontario. So really looking forward to seeing what the province and the federal government do for the upcoming budget. Yeah, I mean, politicians love to it's just study stuff. It's really kind of kicking an issue down the road, and, and it's frustrating, I know. But as I've told you, I mean, the report you're talking about, the sheet covering project confronting the gendered economic impact of COVID-19 in Ontario that the Ontario Chamber did, really can work as a roadmap for the Ontario government as to how they need to approach this and what sorts of programs they need to offer uh, to try to get women back up on their feet once this thing comes out. I mean, we're, we're hearing uh, an awful lot of stories statistically these days, as you know, that are suggesting that well you know we seem to be showing some signs of what coming out of this and things are looking pretty good right now with uh you know we're going to bounce back pretty quickly on this and i know a lot of women especially that have lost their jobs are waiting to get called back or saying well i don't see any evidence of that Uh, so it's it's really time for the government to act on this and and uh, it's it's not rocket science i mean what they need to do here are some of the issues you just talked about uh you know workforce development uh flexible work hours child care things of that nature um i mean there's a number of different stats here that just jump right out 
out here that you've shown. Um, you know, that, uh, and uh, there are mental health issues that are involved in this. 50% of working mothers reportedly uh, higher levels of stress due to this because they have child care obligations. Some of them actually looking after uh, parents in, in multi-generational homes. Uh, the, the challenges and, and, and the, the, the things that are, are getting in the way of, of this recovery are problematic. And again, as we said, seem to be more focused on women. Yes, absolutely. And we're actually, the Ontario Chamber of Commerce is going to be releasing uh, a toolkit for businesses uh, to deal with some of those mental health challenges that um, have come up uh, and been uh, further amplified throughout the pandemic. Um, and to your point, Bill, uh, a lot of it's not rocket science. A lot of it's very simple. If you think about um, things like um, government procurement. Procurement, for example, is something that typically uh, governments look at having the the kind of cheapest bid possible. Um, but there's uh, economic and social value uh, by having diversity in the procurement process. So, you know, when you look at the government of Ontario and government of Canada, they're some of the biggest buyers uh, in our nation. They could adjust an RFP process in a way that creates opportunities for diverse uh, women and entrepreneurs. Um, and suppliers that demonstrate that support for inclusivity. And that's a great way to um, give small businesses uh, uh, a hand up. Um, and then if you look at something like flexible work. Now, flexible work, when we, we talk about flexible work for, from the Chamber perspective, it's not necessarily something that the government should implement. It might be something the government could explore incentivizing there's been some incredible studies. Uh, Microsoft Japan implemented a four-day work week uh, a number of years ago, and their sales went up 40%, for example. So there's, there's a business case to be had um, for, for doing some measures that may be cost-neutral for the government even. Well, and, and statistically here, there's some things, I mean, you mentioned entrepreneurship, and I think that's something that we, we should spend a lot more time talking about, too. Uh, Pre-pandemic, uh, we had a, 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 I think, a fabulous wave of entrepreneurship, especially here in the province mm. of Ontario, a lot of it driven by female entrepreneurs uh, who still need this assistance to get back here. But there's the support programs that you've just outlined have to be part of that support uh, to make sure that, that you know, that they're going to have an equal chance that, to compete in situations like that. Yes, absolutely. And it's and it's a unique situation for, for women entrepreneurs. Um, actually, a, a, an issue that came up in the pandemic, most women entrepreneurs are self-employed, um, so it precluded them from a lot of the support programs that were being rolled out um, by governments uh, uh, during the pandemic. So, so a lot of those you know, different employer uh, programs, uh, they didn't qualify. I believe a lot of them have been, you know, at least the, the, we have a situation where the government at all levels have been listening and responding to uh, feedback from business groups like ourselves and others. Um, and so a lot of those programs were adapted, but that was one of the uh, immediate challenges for women entrepreneurs. And then even, you know, they can benefit from things like uh, uh, a woman entrepreneur is less likely to take on a loan, for example. So you've probably seen a lot of examples of, you know, the federal government has loan options for entrepreneurs, but uh, women entrepreneurs tend to uh, favor things like micro grants or crowdfunding where appropriate. So. There's, um, there's a lot of things that can be tweaked, um, and it is promising that the federal government is talking about doing a, a women's economic action plan um, to, to focus in on some of those uh, uh, issues and opportunities that are unique to women. 
and, and some of them I know are going to be dismissed by, by those in power in Queens Park and in Ottawa simply because they don't seem to understand uh, the impact they can have. And I, I'll just take you back to the debate we had a few years ago here about raising the minimum wage with the previous government. And there was a, all sorts of pushback. Oh, it's going to kill this, it's going to kill that. And we saw, at least here in the Hamilton area anyway, uh, no, it didn't kill businesses. As a matter of fact, a lot of businesses had to start adding employees. If if you give people that are, are challenged right now financially and, and from a, a, an employment standpoint an opportunity to get, make more money, they spend it in the community, and that's good for small business, and that's really what the backbone of this economy is. Uh, and, and the government has to get their head around that, that, that there's a return on investment if they make that step one, though, obviously in a situation like that, Michelle, is they have to make the investment. 100%. All your local businesses, even your franchise businesses, your big companies, businesses of all sizes, they're in communities right across Ontario. And they are involved, they're donating, they're donating time, they're donating resources, they're donating money to local uh, social events, to helping strengthen communities. Uh, there is a ripple event effect when our uh, small, well, when all businesses succeed. Um, truly, I mean, the small businesses are the lifeblood of our communities, but uh, when they succeed, our communities succeed. And, and that's, um, that's something I've always, I, I've always said to uh, the Chamber Network, uh, is something that we have to really push, um, because it's not just, you know, uh, a, a business getting profit. It, they really do work closely with their communities um, to create vibrant, uh, to create a vibrant Ontario, really. Do you get the sense that uh, you guys are doing an awful lot of work on this? I mentioned the report, of course, that you issued some time ago, and it's one of many that you've done uh, mm-hmm. along what's going on, especially the impact that women have been impacted by the uh, the pandemic here. Uh, are you being listened to? Do you, do, you, do you think that the people that are making those policy decisions, uh, well, certainly they're aware of what you've done here, but are they, are they digesting it? We're in constant uh, talks with the province and the feds, um, and I have to say during the pandemic, it's been, it, there's, there's always been a good, strong relationship, um, but during the pandemic, that's been amplified, and I think if you talk to any business owner or business association that um, governments have been listening and responding, you've seen changes from uh, in programs from, you know, our rent program or the wage subsidy program. That's That's been based on advice, um, that's been given from the business community or from individuals. Um, There's been a a tremendous uh, amount of energy and people that are are taking account of what's being said. Um, So I'm I'm confident that we're being listened to. And our chamber network, we have uh, have 140 uh, chambers of commerce and boards of trade across Ontario, um, and they have the ear of their local representatives. So it's a a powerful force um, when we issue a report or when we we bring concerns to the to the government, um, so hoping hoping that we see some positive change. Um, and you know, we're we're also in a year where um, it's not only budgets coming up, but there's we have a, a, a elections on the horizon as well, right? So um, if if now if there's any a time when government is really <laughs> listening to all their stakeholders, now's the time. 
Well, and uh, and maybe a few more women in some of those elected positions might be a, a, a good thing to try to, to shoot for, too. Uh, we've talked about that in the past, but uh, the more we talk about it, more chances of some sort of those successes actually uh, coming to fruition. Michelle, uh, thanks again for the time today. You guys have done an outstanding job at the Ontario Chamber of identifying the problems, offering solutions, uh, and to, to make sure that everybody gets back on their feet and that uh, the entrepreneurship, especially with uh, young female entrepreneurs, continues to flourish as it has in the past, uh, but it's going to happen uh, with the help that the Chamber has already been giving. Thanks for this today, and uh, again, uh, enjoy the rest of your day and uh, International Women's Day. Thank you so much, Bill. Have a great day. You too. Michelle Eaton, Vice President of Public Affairs with the Ontario Chamber. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.